Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Comics and Culture Radar, a podcast that's on the lookout for what's good to read and watch. If you don't know who Milton is, let's ask Kiefer Sutherland's father what he thinks. Don't write this down, but I find Milton probably as boring as you find Milton. He's a little bit long-winded. He doesn't translate very well into our generation, and his jokes are terrible. This episode, Milton's guest is Samuel George London. Samuel is a comic book writer and host of the podcast Comics for the Apocalypse. His miniseries, The S Factor, was just published by Action Lab Entertainment. Sam, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Absolute pleasure, Milton. So you're here to talk about a number of things, but the primary hot off the press item that is of most interest to all of us is your new comic, The S Factor, which I had a chance to read very recently, enjoyed quite a lot. Thanks. Um, why don't you give us the pitch for the the series for anyone who's not familiar with it yet? Yeah. Um, so it's basically about a superhero dating reality TV show with a dark underbelly. Um, that's kind of the logline, <laughs> basically. <laughs> um, but uh, to kind of ex- expand upon that, um, it, it focuses on this underappreciated sidekick called gray fox um who as i just mentioned he's un- he feels underappreciated um from his superior who's called dark fox um and uh he decides and well sorry this opportunity arises um from the british broadcasting service bbs rather than the bbc um uh, arises uh, to take part in a dating reality tv show for superheroes and basically they'd rebrand him um, as a new superhero so that he can go out all on his own and leave his uh, former superior behind in the dust um, to become the su- the uh, supreme superhero of London. Um, but uh, something isn't right, basically. <laughs> right, right. And um, true to form of a reality TV show structure, the I, I won't spoil it, but there is quite a twist in the perspective of the show and of the comic. Um, and it's probably not what you will expect just from the log line. So I highly recommend everybody go through and read all four issues. And I believe all four issues are available now, right? Yeah, that's right. On Comixology, if you just search for uh, the yes factor, then it'll come up right there. Could you tell us a little bit about the genesis of the idea? When, 
when did you come up with it? What what was the kernel of the first idea? Mm. Um, are you a bit of a reality TV show fan, or is that just <laughs> sort of a, a an ex, a happy accident? Uh, I guess it could, could be described as a happy accident. Um, but uh, I first came up with the idea uh, in 2018, um, <clears throat> and uh, it was actually. Um, a year where, for some reason, uh, the the Bachelor had been kind of airing on on UK TV for some reason, like the American Bachelor, um, for some reason, <clears throat> and I kind of absorbed it through osmosis, I think, a little bit, uh, kind of seeing tidbits here and there. Um, but uh, I kind of just watching that and kind of seeing kind of the conflict between the people um it was it was quite i thought that's an interesting uh dynamic between people because they're kind of they're they're forced into this uh situation and and their emotions are basically turned up to 11 because the cameras are on some people want to make a show some people hate the fact that some people are kind of making it a show and things like that even though they've part partaken in it themselves um right, right, right. yeah exactly but um it's it's an interesting setting i think and i thought how can i kind of use that in a, in a comic context and and superheroes was the first thing that came to mind and i'd i'd always wanted to write a superhero comic uh, which i hadn't at that point um and so uh, it was about trying to come up with this concept um of what would kind of be the best setting and i thought that you know having a, a dating reality tv show like the bachelor would be kind of kind of the best and then it was about trying to figure out uh how do you actually kind of merge that into a superhero world uh, what would be the motivations behind the producers of this um, and things like that, which you which you find out in the comic, incidentally. Um, but that's kind of the the dark underbelly that I was talking about earlier. Um, but uh, yeah, so I came up with that concept in 2018, and I actually ran a Kickstarter for this uh, with the artist that we have on uh, that drew it, Chris Panda. Um, but unfortunately, that that was unsuccessful, um, which was really disheartening at the time. However, um, as part of that, um, I was actually uh, introduced to somebody that worked at Action Lab through that that really liked the project and was surprised that it wasn't funded on Kickstarter. Um, and she basically said that she'd be happy to submit it um, to the to the review board at Action Lab. Um, and thankfully, it got through the review board there. Um, and uh, yeah, then you know, come 2020, um, in the midst of a pandemic, um, uh, we actually managed to, to, to get it published and get it out there. Um, and it's, uh, it's just wonderful, uh, to, to finally have it out in the world. Well, that's fantastic. And, uh, speaking as someone who has had a similar experience and noticed a number of peers who've had a similar experience, um, the quote unquote unsuccessful, Kickstarters can sometimes mm -hmm. turn out to be long run successes. I think we need to invent a term for the fail hyphen success Kickstarter. That's a good idea, actually. I think that'd be fantastic. Um, yeah, I'm gonna have to rack my brains for that one because it it's, it's got to be a be a term that we can come up with, like a um, a ping pong success. I don't know, or something like that. 
I like it. I like it. I like it. Now, you mentioned a, a love of superheroes, and that definitely comes through in the S Factor. In fact, um, I don't know about you, but as you're a comic creator, um, I, I don't know if you're plagued by this same issue that I have, but a lot of times when I'm reading a comic, I'm kind of having a two-track experience. Mm. I'm enjoying the comic on its own merits, and then I'm also simultaneously analyzing it. What lessons can I learn? What kind of craft is being done here? What would I have done in this uh, in this same situation? And one of the thoughts I had fairly early on uh, reading this uh, comic was, oh my goodness, Sam, you're, you're, you're wasting all your great superhero ideas uh, here. Um, you've got this mm-hmm. entire world that's coming through and um, you've got a wide uh, cast of characters and ultimately my worries were completely set aside. Um, but um, what, what would you say to the, the concept of, you know, I think other people could take the same idea and kind of give short shrift to the superheroes and it'd be just like, okay, yeah, you know, we all know what a superhero is. Here's one, here's two, whatever. Whereas in your story, there's clearly, you know, an entire backstory and character between all of these contestants. Um, how did you feel about fitting all of this in, into the structure you had? Yeah. I mean, um, it's, it's really tough, isn't it? Um, because, it's it's about trying to strike the right balance of being able to actually create the thing um because the the artist needs to be paid <laughs> for a start so if you right. if you if you come up with a 12 issue epic um, then you eventually you've got to pay for that at some point <laughs> basically right. um as a as the um original um creator of the of the idea um but uh I mean, you don't really have that issue if you if if you're an artist uh, writer, but if you are just a writer, then you kind of that is always in the back of your mind a little bit when creating a story that you kind of you've got to be efficient and effective with your storytelling, um, in that it can't be too large. Well, just at least at the beginning of your career, that is, um, which I'm in at the moment. Um, but uh, yeah, also at the same time, um, from a reader's perspective. Um, I, I, I dislike kind of elongated storylines. Well, well, unnecessarily elongated storylines. So <laughs> okay, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I like to get to the nub of the story kind of straight away. So um, that obviously probably comes through in my writing that I kind of just jump into it basically and as you, as you mentioned there's a whole cast of superheroes here that have clearly got a backstory of some kind and you know there's even a backstory to and there's even more of a backstory to dark fox and gray fox in that as well you get a little bit of that at the beginning um but not much <laughs> so i mean I, it it kind of it leaves me room to expand upon that so what I, i've tried to do is try to give enough to the reader to connect the dots um but also at the same time uh leave it open to interpretation but also open for me as a as a writer to create more stories based upon those questions that readers must have yeah i think you really succeeded in in that aspect of the story structure because it really feels like the kind of thing that simultaneously it gave me exactly what i wanted 
um, for this story, but also left me wanting more. Um, and that's kind of a hard thing to pull off without um, feeling that you've cheapened what you've got because you don't want to arrive at the end of it and feel like, oh, you know, this is all just a setup for a sequel or something. Mm. And you, you don't get that feel at all with the S factor. You get this, you get this great experience. And I don't know if you would like to continue it, but uh, as a reader of it, I would like to see it continue. Um, awesome. <laughs> and I, I want to ask you, but you say you're not a fan of elongated or overly elongated storytelling. Mm. How much of that are, are you naturally suited to as a reader or a writer to to smaller stories or is it a side effect of the um let's just put it this way in the past 10 years there have been a number of comic projects that sort of stake out some territory in the first couple of issues that uh deliver some really giant premise that seems to promise a a very fruitful 50 to 60 to 70 issue idea and you get all excited for it. And then by the time you get to issue three, they're already stalling. Um, <laughs> and it, it feels like, no, wait a minute. The, the, the kind of, you know, delivery here, what seems to be promised is way out of balance with what you actually get. Mm-hmm. Um, it, where is your taste on that? Is it, is it, do you just purely like the shorter format or have you just seen failures? Yeah, I think it's just a case of kind of seeing failures, really. Um, and as you kind of say there, <clears throat> you, you have um, comics that can kind of start off with, you know, the first two or three issues uh, promising kind of this expansive world and things, which is great. Um, but then, like, the preceding kind of 10, 20 issues can kind of be a little bit oh this is dragging <laughs> i'm just getting right, get to right, what right. you mentioned in the first couple of issues um that's that's pretty frustrating um and so yeah it's i guess it's from being a, a frustrated comic fan a little bit um but it's i, I think it it's also reflected in my own personality, unfortunately, because <laughs> I, can, I can be uh, sometimes quite direct and kind of wanting to get to the nub of something um, rather than kind of savouring it, I guess, um, which it, which is both, um, it, well, it's a double-edged sword, basically, because sometimes it's nice to savour these things. And I think it, it, ha- it has absolutely been done right where um, you have storylines that are very long and, and rightfully so. Um, but I think they're they're more rare than than common. Yeah, and I I think getting to the nub is is kind of a, a strength of of your writing in this example at least because um, in addition to the structural brevity of everything, um, there are a lot of pages in this that are uh, almost wordless. Um, uh, no captions, no dialogue, mm-hmm. and most of the panels have dialogue that is extraordinarily succinct. Uh, you've got a very direct prose style with your dialogue, um, and I thought that that worked really well. Oh, thanks, man. Um, yeah, that's that's really what what I was going for certainly in this comic, but I, I, I generally go for that anyway. I kind of I try to let the art speak for itself. Um, I mean, particularly in the final issue, 
um it's it's yeah it's it's fairly wordless <laughs> that final issue um but uh chris has done an outstanding job with the art and he's, he's he's an incredible artist and when you have somebody of that caliber who's able to uh have that that facial acting um as well as the the action-packed um fight scenes and things like that it's you know it's just it's great to have that art just just there speaking for itself now i'm not familiar is this your first collaboration with this artist yes it is yeah how how did you how did you uh partner up yeah with chris um so chris panda is the guy's name he's a he's a frenchman living in germany um but uh, he's a, he's a brilliant artist, and I came across him. I think it was on Twitter, um, and he's he's done some work for IDW. Um, also, um, I think was it for uh, well certainly for Comics Tribe. I know that he recently worked with Ryan K. Lindsay on She. Um, but then yeah, he's he's done multiple covers um, uh, for IDW for like you know Star Trek versus Transformers and stuff like that basically um but uh when i was on the lookout for an artist for the s factor it was really about trying to find somebody that could do kind of just classic superhero art really um and and chris (laughs) kind of screams that basically um he's on his website he's actually got a whole host of uh covers uh that he's where he's uh turned uh classic um comic covers into female protagonists um and it's 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 he's just absolutely nails it basically um on it and you know as soon as i saw that i thought this is the guy that i I need to get and so i contacted chris and thankfully he's available he was available and he's very collaborative and uh very accommodating um to to work with so um yeah it was it was a match made in heaven for me <laughs> yeah and, and you're absolutely correct his style is is a perfect fit for the material i mean it it feels like you know straight out of big two uh yeah. you know modern superhero comic art storytelling so uh it really fit oh yeah massively and i'm i'm just i'm so surprised that he hasn't been picked up by the big two because um, he, he he is on the lookout kind of for that as well um but uh, I'm, I'm i'm sure when the right story comes along that they'll they'll pick him up well i mean it's it's kind of difficult at the moment but um yeah hopefully hopefully that time will come so you, you said that the uh, reality tv show connection here is maybe a little bit of a happy accident um do you have a favorite reality tv show <laughs> um hmm I don't know if it's favourite. Um, it's uh, I'm trying to think of a nice analogy, but the only analogy I can think of is is kind of looking at a car crash, really. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's it's kind of like you know you don't want to look, but you can't help but kind of you know looking out of the corner of your eye as you drive past that kind of thing, um, which is uh, which is terrible. But um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, but what it, it's in the UK, um, we kind of have equivalents to the US. So um, our equivalent of um, uh, what's the one in New Jersey? Um, 
Jersey Shore, is it or something? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Jersey Shores. So our our equivalent, we've we've got two actually. So the first one is the only way is Essex, and Essex is a county that's just kind of it's northeast of of London, and um, they've got quite a, a strong accent, let's say, um, and they're they're well known as our. Um, people, well, in Jersey Shore at least, for having orange skin and kind of, you know, having bucket loads of makeup on and things like that. Okay. And it's just like when you look at the conversations on that on that show, it's like, what are you talking about? Like, you guys are nuts. Um, and then you know, it can sometimes turn into fights and things like that. Um, so that's that's kind of fun to watch for a few minutes. I think um, I just I don't understand anybody that can watch that for longer than a few minutes um, and kind of not, you know, slam their head against the table. Um, it's uh, <laughs> it's incredible. Um, but then at the same time, I tell you what, what's really interesting. So my my wife is French. Um, and they have this reality TV show in France uh, that basically translates to uh, Love in the Field. Um, and it's about um, farmers trying to find love, right? Um, okay. But when you watch it, it's actually really good because it's very heartfelt. It's not about creating arguments and things like this. It's actually about trying to help farmers that are generally that can be very lonely um, in in their occupation and find it difficult to find love because they don't always have the time to kind of go on dating events and things like this and they're busy farming. Um, and uh, yeah, they kind of, they go on dates with, I think it's about three or four people, I think, like multiple dates. Uh, but it, it's quite clear that the main aim is to, is to help the farmer and the people that are involved um, to actually find some sort of relationship rather than trying to create conflict. Um, so uh, not all dating reality TV show is, is, is bad. And well, not all reality TV is bad. Um, I think I think there are some some good ones out there, uh, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's an interesting concept. <laughs> I wanted to ask you, um, as a person in the UK, um, as an outsider perceiving your culture from the the US perspective, it seemed to me at least that the UK um, is more enraptured by the reality TV show format. Um, am I wrong about that? Nah, not at all. Um, we, we've gone all out on it, <laughs> basically. Um, we because, were... I mean, just anecdotally, um, I, I don't know if it's as popular now as it was in its prime, mm -hmm. but um, I'm a little bit of an Anglophile myself, and I, I follow a lot of people on social media from the UK, and just I would notice at some <laughs> seemingly random point uh, to me, um, all of these people would be talking about a person with the same name and they would just refer to this person by their first name. And it would just be assumed that everybody would know what we're all talking about here. And it would turn out to be that that would be the person that was performing on the X factor. Oh, the S factor, sorry. Or do you mean the X factor? Sorry. <laughs> The, oh, did I say the S factor? Yeah. <laughs> I've got it on the brain. Yeah. No, I'm, no, I meant the X factor. The uh, yes, the, the 
the singing competition. Yes, absolutely. Um, so uh, yeah, that that is well up there. Um, although um, in recent years, just in the past couple of years, it's actually kind of been going downhill in its ratings. Um, but you know, you've still got the X Factor. You've got Britain's Got Talent equivalent, obviously being America's Got Talent. Um, you've also got The Voice, of course, uh, which. You guys have got, I think, as well, have you? Um, you must do. Uh, and then, um, I mean, you've just got all of the um, regular reality TV shows, like The Only Way is Essex, Geordie Shore, uh, which is kind of a take on Jersey Shore as well. It's, it's in the north of England. Um, and uh, we, I think we were the f- one of the first ones to take on uh, the, the Dutch programme Big Brother, um and uh no yeah we're we're a big tabloid society over here so kind of having gossip from reality tv shows is kind of prime water cooler uh talk um in in the uk certainly um i mean i'm i'm not really <laughs> to, to to be gossiping myself but i know plenty of people that do the one out of all the ones you mentioned that i actually became a bit of a fan of for a number of years was actually uh, the UK version of Big Brother. Um, I I personally am am not really a fan of the reality TV show genre generally, Mm -hmm. Um, but someone turned me on to the UK version of Big Brother, and I was endlessly fascinated by it because the American version is some sort of like competition show with a lot of very pretty people um, that, you know, they, they try to do, you know, romantic triangles and so forth and everything and it's it's all about scoring points and voting things whereas the the uk version is uh like a sociology experiment Mm -hmm. and they bring they bring folks together from lots of different socioeconomic backgrounds and they don't get along (laughs) and um it's 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 almost like watching like an anthropological you know david attenborough special (laughs) but about the human animal as opposed to you know a reality show yeah absolutely and and, and that was the original idea uh with with big brother um i believe it was really kind of almost like a psychological experiment um but uh obviously as soon as kind of advertisers and producers get their hands on it 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 turns into something else just just to chase ratings basically but um no yeah um it's uh it's a it's a fascinating um uh, genre of tv um and in in my research actually i did i did find some quite worrying research that, that those that watch more reality tv show um uh actually have more emotional arguments basically um, and have more uh, variation in their in their emotions as well um, as, a, as a direct result of having watched more reality TV because they, they think that the way to solve an argument is to shout at each other you know oh like goodness, <laughs> like instead of an actual like normal person conflict resolution where you kind of you try to you know you try to calm yourself down if you are getting angry and things and try to actually kind of have some sort of resolution rather than just shouting at each other, slamming doors and then kind of, you know, going to go do something crazy. Like, I don't know, like throw a chair through a window or something <laughs> like, like I've seen on reality TV before. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's quite worrying. So 
Um, but I think obviously that's kind of when you've only got particular types of reality TV. Um, and going back to the example of the of the French reality TV show that I was talking about earlier, where it's quite quite clear that their motivation is to create love between the contestants rather than having any conflict um then obviously that's something that's very positive and believe it or not this is the this is the longest running tv show in france i believe oh, I, think, wow. I think it's been been going like 20 years and it's kind of it's the same uh number of ratings that they've had throughout the whole thing um so it's, it's obviously striking a chord that you know you don't always need to try and chase conflict and things that if you, actually if your heart is in the right place then it's potentially you know <laughs> quite good <laughs> So we've talked a little bit about contrasting uh, American and UK culture in terms of uh, how we uh, react to reality television. There's another obvious dimension um, in television. The the scale is so vastly different. Um, a lot of fans of UK TV from the US are often... Uh, drawn to the briefer runs of programs because so many American programs run far too long. <laughs> and I'm wondering, is, is that entirely economical or does UK culture have a bit of that Sam London knack for storytelling? Uh, perhaps. Um, it, may, it might kind of be intrinsic to, to British society. Um, but um, it, it just seems that I, I'm not sure it's entirely economical because, I mean, obviously the reason that American TV um, does that is in order to have more advertising on those shows. Yeah. Basically, um, if it's if it's not broke, um, don't fix it. And kind of, there's no there's no <laughs> bigger example of that than The Walking Dead, I think. <laughs> um, and they're they're really milking it for all it's worth now. Um, which is crazy. Like, um, I've seen that they've got um, the Walking Dead World Beyond now, which is like the third series, third, well, the second spin-off of the original. Oh my goodness! Right. Um, so they're really starting to milk it, and you know the games are basically all the same, <laughs> um, and it's just um, I don't know. They're they're really milking it on that, but yeah, with the UK, I think there is kind of a real. <clears throat> focus on trying to just tell the story that you want to tell and then move on basically that's really what we try to try to do <laughs> now um teach me a little bit about the differences in the cultures um specifically to contemporary comics i'm, I'm not too familiar with what uh would be uh, more popular in the UK these days in the world of comics. Um, my limited understanding of UK comics is just that, you know, in the eighties, we stole all of your talent um, <laughs> over here. Um, but other than that, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm woefully ignorant of, of trends in uh, British comics. Uh, give me a little bit of the, the lay of the land. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it's still very kind of DC Marvel centric, all of it, to be honest. Um, of course, you have um, a lot of the in independent comics coming through, but that's still kind of coming from um, an American uh, American focus. 
at the same time, kind of through image and things like that. Um, but of course, then on the flip side, of course, you've got 2000 AD um, and, uh, and and comics like that that are still staples. You can still find them in in most convenience stores. Um, 2000 AD, which is which is <clears throat> you know thankful that they're still going going pretty strong um, with it. Uh, like you don't just find them in comic shops because uh, when I was a kid, um, you did have a lot of um, comics in convenience stores, and it wasn't just comic shops. But now it's really kind of you can only find comics in comic shops um, and in convenience stores or supermarkets. It it's still just like 2000 AD, the Beano, um, and like loads of magazines. <laughs> basically um <laughs> but uh no yeah certainly in in comic shops um i mean there there has been quite a bit bit of a push for indie comics as well so of course you've kind of got uh indian small press sections in comic shops as well where they try to try to promote them um but ultimately comic shops are businesses and they need to sell stuff in order to 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 stay viable um and and the things that sell are still just dc and marvel titles for the most part really now um i'm going to move on to other topics but i do have one other us uk contrast question for you Uh, and this one's entirely self-serving i hope other people will be entertained by your answer as well but um i do have a project i'm going to be writing soon that uh, takes place in the UK. Um, what do outsiders who try to write stories set in the UK get wrong? Mm. What What do they miss? What do they get wrong? Hmm. Um. Let me think. I'm trying to think of examples of. I mean, I think certainly roads and housing are often gets kind of confused um and i can't think of any examples for comics but for tv it sticks out like a sore thumb basically um oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah like um recently i'll tell you what during during um this this whole pandemic um my wife and i have actually we've actually rewatched lost <laughs> for some reason i don't know why uh, it was just it was on it was on amazon prime um and we thought you know let's re-watch it again um and uh like in in the cut scenes where you know um Desmond is supposedly in the UK it's like that's mm-hmm. definitely not the UK um that's <laughs> definitely an american street made out to look like it's the UK um and like stuff like that so yeah when when you are kind of doing your research and kind of providing your artist with um with uh, descriptions and things just go onto google maps Honestly, um, go onto Google Maps, yeah. get Street View, and then send them a print screen of what an actual UK street looks like, what the cars <laughs> look like as well. There are not very many pickups um, in the UK, not at all. It tends to be hatchbacks and people movers or, um, you know, uh, soccer mum uh, cars, you know. Um, that's basically it. <laughs> um, uh, and then I think maybe the other thing is perhaps maybe sometimes the language. <clears throat> um, I mean, yeah, this this certainly sticks out from from American films that have uh, supposed British people in it. 
Um, and like the Cockney slang is completely, you know, not correct. Um, and uh, like even just the slang is just, what are you doing? <laughs> that, that's not what that means. Like, I mean, the, the boys um, is a really good series, of course. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the TV series. Um, but sometimes the the language that Carl Urban is using is just like, that's not it. <laughs> and I, I'd, have, I'd have thought that somebody like Carl Urban, and although he's a Kiwi, he'd kind of know that. You know, um, and I sometimes his accent is appalling. <laughs> it's, oh goodness! <laughs> it's like, dude, he sounds like Dick Van Dyke from um, from Mary Poppins. You know, um, oh my goodness! Some just sometimes, not all the time, but just sometimes, it's like, oh, I just wish that they they just just keep your Kiwi accent, just make him a Kiwi for the TV series. It doesn't matter, <laughs> right? <laughs> it wouldn't have mattered, I don't think. Um, I don't know, uh, but. Uh, <clears throat> yeah certainly just uh the the slang um is often the thing and the streets i think so in addition to being a comic creator you're also a podcaster and i expect that most of the folks listening to this episode will may have heard your podcast but for those who haven't uh it's got a very intriguing uh format uh tell us a little bit about it yeah, so it's called Comics for the Apocalypse, and I've had the pleasure of having you on, Milton, so um, folks, go check that out. But basically, I interview guests about what comics they take into the apocalypse. Um, and uh, as, you, as you know, the guests, they choose a, a random number between one and six, and then um, that kind of sets what uh, apocalypse situation they're in uh, and then that's where we start off the conversation and then it leads in to, to what comics they actually choose to take into the apocalypse and I ask them, ask you uh, things like what was the first comic that you read what's the funniest comic, the saddest comic and uh, your favourite cover, the most meaningful comic um, the best comic of all time um, and then what comic would you would you if you could only take one comic into the apocalypse? Which would it be? And that's not always the same as their favourite comic. Um, so uh, yeah, it's 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 a really fun ride to um, to get into. So how did you come up with the concept for Comics for the Apocalypse? Yeah, so um, the the concept actually comes from um, Desert Island Discs. Um, do you know that one at all? I. I think it's self-explanatory, but is it, is there a specific podcast that uses that or are you just yes, so, referring to the general? I uh, know. Oh so it's, it's actually, um, it's, it's a radio show. It's a BBC radio show um, that is uh, been running since the mid forties, basically. So it's gosh, what's that? It's almost coming up like 80 years old. <laughs> this, this TV show, which is crazy when you think about it. Um, but uh, they essentially ask uh, their guests about what um, what music that they'd take with them onto a desert island. Um, and, interesting. And interesting. They, they ask for eight, eight tracks, and and through their um, through their choices, they talk they talk about their life essentially, and the interviewer. Uh, ask them about their life um, and you know there, there's no specific questions like I'm asking um, but um, it's 
it, one song kind of reminds them about their childhood and then the next one reminds them about being at university the next one reminds them about being at their wedding and their the birth of their child and stuff like that and like leads them up to where they are today basically um and that is just it's a it's just an amazing insight into well-known people um so yeah definitely search for that desert island discs and they've had all sorts of people on there you know um from david attenborough himself uh to john cleese and you know jk rowling and and everybody in between um it's uh it's, it's really really fascinating but taking that concept into comics um yeah um i just thought how how does that work and you know um the best way is to kind of be uh kind of as, as fictionalized as possible and apocalypse is is always a fun thing to kind of chew the fat on so you know comics for the apocalypse <laughs> Awesome, awesome. Now, uh, apocalyptic or dystopian themes or stories are are those things that you're uh, naturally a fan of? Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I, uh, I originally i I only got into comics. Gosh, when was it? Um, about two thousand and fourteen, maybe. Um, so I'm, you know, a, a newbie as far as it goes, really. But the reason that I got into it was The Walking Dead. Um, so having watched the show, I found out that it was a comic, and so then I ended up writing, uh, reading the, the the comic itself, uh, which I enjoyed more, <laughs> um, and uh, then you know discovered the rest of the work uh, of Robert Kirkman's work and discovered Mark Miller and then, you know, Alan Moore and Grant Morrison and all the rest of them really. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that, that originally opened up my mind, but I'm, I'm always uh, happy to, to look at somebody's take on, on an apocalypse um, and different apocalypses as well. And even kind of dual apocalypses, you know, and w- which the walking dead was, it was apparently originally pitched as that it was, it was a zombie apocalypse with an, with an alien invasion, wasn't it? Um, that's how he pitched it and, and, and got its publication. But then he was like, you know, there's not, there's not going to be any aliens, by the way. <laughs> apparently. So, uh, well, You've just revealed that you probably got uh, you've got to be in the running for the Guinness Book of World Records for the briefest amount of time between discovering a medium and becoming published in that medium. Um, that's a that's a pretty uh, impressive time span. So congratulations on that. Thanks, man. Yeah, um, I don't know. Um, I just I really di- dove into comics um, and, and read everything that I that took my fancy um and then uh yeah it was just i just felt the need to to write it to write something because I'd, I'd attempted to write novels and things in the past but i'd never been able to follow through with it um but when i first came up with the idea for my first comic milford green um which is a victorian um alien story um it just it just flew out of me you know um it was just it was awesome but uh yeah when i when when i do get down to writing a comic now i just feel like it does it just flows out of me it's just it feels great when i when i'm writing a comic so i'm i'm just happy that i've i've managed to found a medium that i can actually create something so uh have you had anyone turn the tables on you 
and put you through your own format on the show? Not yet. Um, I'm I'm saving that one, um, but uh, we'll, we'll we'll see um, when I when I manage to, to to get that to happen. But it will happen eventually, I think. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah. I, I I look forward to that. So, as someone who's got a little bit of the the market cornered on the on the on the, on the world of the apocalypse, do you, um, do you feel like you've got uh, got some beef uh, with the year 2020 in general, kind of? <laughs> Horning in on your territory here, definitely. Um, now, now that it's an actual reality, um, yeah, it's not so nice. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, it's it's been for the most part quite a depressing year. Um, there've been some some good things come out of it, but um, it's it's been a very trying year. Um, for for everybody and just my heart goes out to everybody that that it's dramatically affected um and uh yeah i just hope that we're, we're able to uh to make things better for next year indeed 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 well um let me let me steer us back real briefly here to the to the world of comics and your your craft specifically um, what is your writing process? What what kind of tools do you use? So for me, um, my initial starting point is that I I try to pin down an outline, um, and again a brief a brief outline. Um, I generally generally use um, the eight point story arc. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that. I have not heard that one. No, no um, but you can, you can just Google it. Eight point story arc. Um, but it's basically the story arc that um, Dan Harmon uses um, for Rick and Morty and community and things like that, um, just to pin down uh, what the story actually is is trying to say um, and just making sure that you get all the beats in there. So I start off with uh, trying to set out an eight-point story arc. And then uh, from there, once I've pin that down uh then um i'll go about just starting starting writing but the way that i write um i use um a, a writing table um and not as in like a desk <laughs> i mean an actual uh table in a word document for instance um okay. and i've got um <clears throat> how many rows three rows uh, three columns sorry in total so the first column uh, is your page and panel. So um, when it says 1.1 in that column, it means the first page, first panel. And then you have 1.2, 1.3, and things like that for what what panel it's going to be. Uh, and then the next column from there, I've got the description of that column. And then the last one is the dialogue. Um, and the reason that I use that format in particular is because... I, I can just see it across the page because um, when when I read other people's uh, standard scripts, which are like film scripts, um, going vertically, I can't it, I can't visualize it as well for some reason. So um, having the table format where you have it going right across the page, so horizontally, <clears throat> rather than having to write uh, reads vertically, just helps me visualize um you know how the page is going to look what the actual content 
of the page as well again it's very kind of clear and concise in my head um and the the feedback that i've had from from artists is that it's actually quite helpful for them <laughs> having it in a table like that um but uh yeah um that's that's how i write and then once i've done a first draft then i send it to my uh my editor nicole deandria um who then helps me pin down what what's perhaps missing um and also it helps me out with dialogue as well just in terms of kind of grammar but also um you know when grammar isn't isn't needed kind of is that how the how the character should sound and things like that mm. um but uh yeah then once i get that back from nicole then i might kind of do a few more polishes and things like that and then i'll send it to um to my artist uh, and then kind of the collaboration um, process starts from there and it's really every artist is is different in terms of if they want to do it through twitter or they want to do it on um just through email or whatsapp or something like that um but it's always just a, a going back and forth in terms of uh, them actually sketching out the pages nailing down the layout and and kind of the actions and things and then obviously going into the full detail so what would be your uh, key piece of advice for persons wanting to create comics uh, from your personal lessons learned? Uh, what If you had one key piece of advice or, mm -hmm. or two, uh, what would they be? Uh, start small. <laughs> um, like, like, like all of these endeavors, don't, don't go, go all out thinking that you're going to write uh, a Lord of the Rings trilogy straight off the bat or kind of your, your watchman or, anything like that um it's you, you you're better off starting so you can have those ideas kind of brewing in the background like you know you've got this 12 issue arc that you want to get out there and things but start small um try and uh get involved in anthologies uh where the storylines um tend to be four to eight pages long um i highly recommend trying to use some sort of story structure formula at the start at least um the one that i mentioned before again is the eight point story arc um and to do that's just really useful to help you gain the skills of trying to figure out how a story should actually be <clears throat> um and with that because it's eight points you can actually do it so that each point is a page basically um and so you just have an eight page story right there and it can be just anything as as simple as uh as you know a a, <clears throat> a kid going to the woods to uh to go on his own imag imaginary adventure and then ending up back home you know it doesn't have to be a high stakes sci-fi epic or something like that um it just has to be something simple just so that you can um start start your storytelling um skills to to try and sharpen them um but uh yeah so start small uh, get in touch with uh anthology series to try and get involved in those because they're all they are always looking for for stories um and then once you've got published and things like that um through those anthologies then you can 
kind of uh, start start to expand on that. Um, you can, of course, just go straight to Kickstarter um, and and try and go from there. Um, doesn't work for everybody, uh, but it works for a lot of people, myself included. Um, so uh, yeah, Kickstarter is a great place to to get your comics if you can't get them published elsewhere. Well, these are all fantastic bits of advice, um, all of which I wish I had known before I first started uh, writing comics. <laughs> so anyone out there who's listening to this, who's considering it, definitely heed Sam's words here. Thanks, Milton. Much appreciated. So um, are you at liberty to tell us anything about any other projects you have currently brewing? Um, I'm, I'm currently working on... Uh, my latest kickstarter which was funded in when was it may um yeah it was may uh, that it was funded uh, access denied um so that's currently in the works um and then other than that i'm trying to th- um i mean my my time's really limited at the moment um with work and childcare and um family and things like that so um unfortunately i'm i'm not really writing that much right now um i'm i've got a few ideas in the works um that i'm working on um but uh those probably won't come to fruition until next year i think um but uh yeah i've got got plenty of um of back catalog for for people to check out <laughs> as well um if they if they want to um but uh yeah i'll uh, I'll, I'll keep you posted milton <laughs> Cool, cool, cool. And to close out, I, I have one question that I ask everybody. Uh, the title of the podcast, Milton's Comics and Culture Radar. What's on your radar? What what are you reading? What are you watching that you can recommend? Um, at the moment, I am reading Kill Them All by Kyle Starks, um, which is uh, basically about... Um, What's the best way to describe it? Um, I mean, Kyle is an exceedingly funny guy. Um, and so just his dialogue is hilarious. And it's always kind of, you know, action comedy, basically. But it's it's about this... Um, I'm only a, probably about 30 pages in. But it seems to be about this woman who... Um, uh, well, this girl, actually that went missing and then years later it seems that she's entangled in some sort of organized crime and then she's kind of uh, exiled from this and then it's about her getting revenge or something like that um basically I'm, i haven't explained it very well because i haven't read it <laughs> basically but i'm reading that at the moment um and it's it's just hilarious um so that's what i'm reading right now um other than that i am currently watching Handmaid's Tale um, which is very timely um, and very scary at the same time <laughs> because you know um, things things might be happening as we as we speak in in that respect um, and uh, what else am I reading ah I'm reading I'm starting to read um, a a novel by this uh, guy called Graham Hancock and it's called War God. Um, So I don't know if you've heard of Graham Hancock before, but he's, he's this um, kind of alternative 
archaeologist guy. He's he's more of a journalist and a reporter and reports on kind of alternative theories on archaeology and things. Um, and uh, he's got a very interesting take. Uh, but uh, his one of his novels, War God, is about um, the conquistadors coming over to South America um, and kind of, you know, uh basically ransacking the whole place but he he also presents the fact that you know when cortez came to uh mexico and kind of you know this mass genocide of the aztecs and the mayans um the the aztecs were actually kind of dictators as it was they were actually really bad people at the same time you know they're sacrifice uh sacrificing many many people and i think it was like eighty thousand that the the leader of the aztecs ended up sacrificing um in the end and he was kind of pretty mad on um hallucinogenic drugs <laughs> at the time I think. Oh, wow. yeah so it was it was a bit of a foobar situation like basically the 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 common people of the aztecs and the mayans at the time were screwed either way <laughs> which which really sucks um but uh, yeah he's, he's written a novel based on that and it's from the perspective of um the the female translator that they used um because the mayans spoke a different language and the as as techians uh spoke a different language and obviously the spaniards spoke spanish um but she spoke the mayan language and the aztecian language um and it only took her like two or three weeks to learn spanish or something um and she ended up being the translator for all of them to try and negotiate and then obviously it it ended up bad because it ended up in a war but um you know it's from her perspective basically um and it's uh just really interesting cool 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 well thank you so much for those recommendations and thank you for coming on to the program uh before i let you go could you just let us know where is the best place to find you on the internet uh, best place is twitter um under samuel g london um and if you go there then you'll be able to end up everywhere else uh, such as my comicsology page my kickstarter page um i'm also on the instagram I don't post as, as often as I do on, on Twitter, uh, which is also under Samuel G. London at the same time. Uh, and then if you want to check out my uh, my independently self-published comics, then if you go to signalcomics.com, uh, then you'll be able to check them out there as well. Excellent, excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming on to the program. My pleasure, Mason. Mm-hmm.